0: Well, if I was to never preach again, what scripture, what message would I want to convey today? Or if you had to share one verse with a friend who has not accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would it be? You know, I read once that if you know nothing about the Bible at all, begin in John 3.16. And if you know everything about the Bible, go back to John 3.16. It's one of those Mount Everest type of verses that we find in Scripture. It's simple enough for those outside of Christ to understand, but it's deep enough for theologians to ponder for hours. Having said that, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to take time to study this verse word for word because it's so memorable and it's so strategic in what it says. Let's read it together, although I know many of you know it and have known it. Ever since you were a child. Let's read it together this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is probably the best known verse in the New Testament. It's probably the most memorized, the most preached, the most quoted verse in the Bible. It probably is or should be the first verse Bible translators put into another language as the gospel goes out to other cultures. This verse is the gospel in a nutshell. It's the entire plan of salvation in a few short words. So as we examine this wonderful verse this morning, which just, just lays out the grace of God towards us. First, we're going to see the greatest love. We start with, for God So loved the world. This verse begins with what has to be the greatest love this world has ever seen or heard of the love of God for this world. No love can compare with this love because no one can compare to God. I mean, we often try to define God's love based on our limited human understanding of love. But our love pales in significance when compared to God's great love. Not the love of a father or a mother, the love of a husband or a wife or vice versa. Not even the love a grandpa feels for two perfect little wonderful grandsons. (laughs) Our human love just can't compare to the height and the depth and the length and the the breadth of the love of God for the world. The reason is because the subject of the love we're reading about is God. God is the greatest lover in the universe. He is holy and infinite and perfect. So therefore, his love is holy, infinite, and perfect, without flaw or blemish. In fact, the very nature of God is love. And it's not just that God loves like the verb, but it's God is love like the noun. We read in John, 1 John 4.8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In 1 John four sixteen, we read, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So at the very depth of God's own being is love. It's really beyond our human understanding. It's beyond this world... Because it comes from God, who is beyond from beyond this world. This world really knows nothing of love like this. It's a higher love, a nobler love, a purer love. So don't quickly read over that little preposition in John 3.16. Notice the magnitude of his love. He so loved the world. He so loved the world. And the Greek word for love in this passage is not Eros, meaning this physical or sexual attraction. It also does not refer to a bond between two people. That would be philia. Rather, this word is agape, agapeo. It's a love that chooses to love. It's a form of love that, it's a higher form of love than the others because its origin is not based on a beauty or a desirable characteristic of the one to be loved. I mean, I love Tina because there are qualities that draw me to her, and I understand that. There are just too many for me to mention this morning, so I won't even try. What I don't understand is this type of love that God chooses to love something that is repulsive to him. It's clear when looking at the entire body of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that a holy, pure, perfect God detests sin, It's repulsive to him. We in our sin are repulsive to a holy God. Yet we're the object of this love in John 3.16. He's chosen to love those who are lost, those who are sinful, guilty, depraved, rebellious, ruined, corrupt. God actually chooses to love the world. There's nothing we've done to cause this love. It originated in the depths of his own being, and God loves because he's chosen to love us. God loved us long before we first loved him. This is clear. 1 John four nineteen says, We love because he first loved us. Our love for God is this reciprocal love that goes back to him only after we understand his love for us and our desperate need to receive this love, to receive this gift, to receive his son. But his love, not our love back to him, his love, so unexplainable, so extraordinary. So our first takeaway from this section is is simple. Let us not lose our amazement and our astonishment that he would make us the object of his affection, that God whom millions of angels right now are worshiping, that God who sits in unapproachable light, that God would be drawn to set his love on us, For God so loved the world, a world perishing, a world in rebellion, so undeserving, a world so indifferent to him, yet God so loved the world, which leads us right into our our second point, that true love sacrifices You can't talk about the greatest love, which is the love of God, the greatest love, without the greatest sacrifice. Because without sacrifice, love just becomes an emotional feeling. So the verse continues. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Backtracking a little, for God so loved, we've concluded, obviously refers to the Father. And sometimes we get the impression that the Savior is so loving, which he is, ...contrasted to the father who's so stern and strict. Like at some point in heaven, the son had to, had to overcome the father's hesitation to save... ...and drag him into the redemptive story. Well, This verse is clear that all of this is from the father. All of this is gushing forth from the depths of God the father. He is the author and the architect of the entire plan of salvation. It's God the father within the trinity who has assumed headship and the son is in submission under the father's headship and god the father sends his son into the world in fact one of the unique characteristics of the gospel of john is this is it documents how many times jesus loved to repeat this fact that he is the one sent by god the father See John 5, 37, or John 8, 29, or John 12, 49, or John 16, 28, and John 20, 21, to name a few. In fact, the verse right after John three sixteen reads like this. For God did not send, again, send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Those who love much, give much. And we can measure the extent of one's love by its sacrifice. So how great, therefore, is the love of God who gave his only begotten son? I ask you this morning, what greater sacrifice could God have made? What greater gift could God have given? It would have been far easier for God to give something he created than his only begotten son. It would have been far easier for God to have given the entire universe... Than his only begotten son. It would have been far easier for God to, give in, to have given the entirety of heaven and all the angels around his throne than for him to give out of sacrificial love his only begotten son. It would have been an unimaginable sacrifice if God had given a son. Like, say, God had two sons or three sons or four sons. For God to give one out of three or four sons would have been unimaginable. But what kind of love is this that God has given his only begotten son? This son, this perfect sinless son. In fact, one who is co-equal and co-eternal with himself. In reality, God gave one who is equal to him. God gave himself, if you will, as God gave his son. He gave one who is equally holy, equally just, equally loving, equally God. For God to give this son, his only begotten son, is love immeasurable. And when we see the word begotten, don't think there was a time when Jesus did not exist and he was created by the Father. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses and other cults teach. No. This phrase, only begotten, is one word in the Greek language, and it means God's one of a kind son, God's sole son, God's unique son. God gave his only son, and there's no one else even in the class of his one and only son. No one else even comes close to measuring up. He's in a category by himself. God gave his only begotten, his one of a kind, unique son. This is the gift God gave the world. God gave him to the saving mission which would require his son to leave his side in heaven to enter into this sinful, wicked human race that lives in defiance of God. He parted with his son to be born of a virgin, under the law, to live among us, to experience all the temptations we do but remain without sin to be surrounded and badgered by the religious leaders of the day, and then to go to a cross. He gave his son to be lifted up to die, a sin-bearing death on behalf of all that would call upon his name. God gave him so freely. No one was putting a gun to the head of God the Father, forcing him in some hostage-type negotiation-type of setting, forcing him to send his son Rather, the Father, by His own design and initiative, chose to send His Son for us. Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He was delivered over, sent, given over, not to a vacation, not to a resort somewhere, but to condemnation because of our transgressions. He stood in our place and he was found guilty and he was delivered over to the condemnation of a public crucifixion by which he would die in our place. How great. How amazing is the love of God towards us, his creation. He purposefully, voluntarily gave up his son Unto death for rebels and sinners like me and like you. The greatest sacrifice. No one in this room has ever sacrificed like this. Nor will we ever really scratch the surface of this type of sacrifice. It's the greatest love that offers the greatest sacrifice. So in this section, the greatest sacrifice, what's our application You know, how should this passage move us to action or self-evaluation? God gave us his absolute best in Jesus, so I think our personal evaluation needs to consider this fact. Are we giving our best back to God? Which then opens the question, does he even want or demand our best? I mean, shouldn't God be happy as he's sitting on his throne in heaven? Shouldn't he be happy that all of us got up this morning And made it to church. I mean, we could have slept in. We could have gone golfing. We could have gone fishing. We could have done whatever we wanted to. Isn't he happy I just showed up? I'm not so sure. We we often assume he's happy, but that assumption comes from the mindset that God in heaven is grateful for just anything we might decide to give back to him. That God in heaven is grateful just for a little bit of time we might offer him here and there. Or he's so, so grateful we threw a little bit of money in the offering plate. Or he's so, so grateful that we came and we sang to him, even though it's half-heartedly and we're really not even singing that much. I don't know. Does that mirror scripture? We make false assumptions, possibly form a false picture of God in our minds, does that mirror Scripture? There's an interesting passage in the book of Amos which instructs us that God absolutely wants our best. Let's read it together. It's found in Amos 5.21, and we read, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's, That's pretty intense. That God, our creator, with such power to create us, To create the world, to create the universe, all by the power of his spoken word. The God who in Revelation chapter 4 is revealed sitting on his throne in heaven. And four living creatures surround him who day and night it reads, never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. God Almighty knows he deserves our best. He's worthy of that. And in this text anyway, he was not pleased with the people of that particular assembly who did not give their best back to him. They were bringing offerings to God, even choice offerings we read, and God said, I have no regard for them. They were singing to him, but God says, take away from me the noise of your songs. Wow. From a human perspective, Shouldn't he be pleased I'm here even singing at all? I mean, I don't even like to sing that much. God was not pleased with their hearts, which leads to a low level of worship. God is worthy of our best. He knows that. We should know that. We should always be on guard for just going through the motions. God is a holy, forgiving, gracious God. Praise him for that. Praise him for his love because we all need his forgiveness often. But here in Amos is one of those times where he says, I am the Lord whose name is God Almighty. I deserve your best and you guys just aren't giving it to me. Another interesting passage supporting the same train of thought is found in Malachi. We read in Malachi chapter 1, verses 8-11, through 11, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? You see what they're doing? They're finding the blind animals, the lame ones, running into each other out there, and they're giving that to God. They're not giving their best. They're giving that to God. And he says, you wouldn't even give that to your governor. He wouldn't be pleased with you. Reading on in verse 9, But now will you not entreat God's favor that he he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates. Translation, lock the doors. That you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And again, you carry the same train of thought right through the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelations. Well, there in chapter 2, Jesus addressed, he addresses people that comprise churches. And if we read Revelation chapter 2, our obvious conclusion is that those people were not giving Jesus their best. So I just want to encourage all of us today, every one of us, we're the body of Christ, men and women and students. Take time to contemplate this afternoon after you go home. Take time to contemplate this week a very, very, very simple question. Are you giving your best to God? He gave us his best, his one and only son in John 3, 16, which we've been looking at today. Our application is that we absolutely need to give our best back to him. He wants all of us. He wants our hearts because he's given us the greatest offer. This message of salvation through Christ is to be offered to everyone, wherever they are. It's free, without cost. And John 3.16 continues that whoever believes in him, whoever, what an all-encompassing word. Whoever you are, rich or poor, male or female, religious or irreligious, Jew or Gentile, whatever tribe or people group. Basically, if you're breathing and you hear of this great love and sacrifice, it's offered to you that whoever, no one is excluded, believes. And this is the one and only term which the love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, may be received. How loving of a God that this is the only requirement. It's not believe and run a marathon under a certain time span. It's not believe and come up with a certain amount of money to throw in the offering plate. It's not believe and take a test showing you have the proper IQ to get into heaven. It is simply believe. And believe means that you commit your life to Christ. It means you surrender your life to Christ. Because look at the next two words. We believe in him. And this preposition In means into something. It means motion into something. Not just believing in something, but it means into something. For example, the same preposition, when I looked this up, was translated in other verses as into Egypt or into Israel or into the country or into a house. Or it it read that they dwelt in a city must believe into him, in him. For example, you stand in front of an elevator at the hospital and it comes down and you believe in that elevator. You believe that it will take you up to the fifth floor. But what do you have to do? You have to believe into it. You have to take a step of faith, put both feet in there, and then it will take you up to the fifth floor. And this is what this preposition is trying to convey. It's not about, about just believing in Christ. It must be real. It must be active within us. It must be dynamic. We have to take a step of faith and commit our life to Jesus Christ, into him. It's not some sort of easy believism. He is the object of our faith. You personally must believe in Jesus Christ. Christ is the him. It means to submit yourself to his lordship, to deny yourself and follow Christ. It means to finally come to the end of yourself where you're no longer trying to bargain with God and earn your way to heaven. You finally look to Christ. You look away from yourself and you look to Christ. This is the greatest offer. Heaven is being offered. Forgiveness is being offered. You must accept the offer and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. As we finish out the verse, whoever will not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ rescues us. And there's no rescue that can even compare to this rescue. This is being rescued from perishing. And to perish is to receive God's final and eternal Judgment. To perish is to stand before God without the blood of Christ covering your sins and receiving the just verdict for those sins. To perish is to experience God's wrath. The one who turns to Jesus and believes in him will not perish, will not suffer condemnation, will not go to hell. The one who believes in Christ will be rescued from the wrath to come. In reality, to believe in Jesus is to be saved from the wrath of Jesus. Rather, we will have eternal life. There can be no greater gift. This presupposes that we were all eternally dead, lifeless. We had physical life, but no spiritual life. And note the verb tense, have. It's worth noting. It's not one day in heaven you will have eternal life. It's not as though you have to go into eternity to then receive eternal life. No, have. Present tense, right now. The moment we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. We receive a life that's unlike anything else we've ever experienced because it's not of this world. And this world has nothing to give us that could ever compare to this eternal life. It's the life of another existence. It's to have Christ in us. And Christ is the life. He comes to live inside of us. Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's this quality of life that we can't even imagine. It's duration, it goes on forever. It's eternal life, never ending. It goes on and on and on throughout all the ages to come. So right now our body is here. I'm here, I'm moving, but my citizenship is in heaven. Apart from believing in Christ, the opposite is true. We won't have no citizenship, no eternal life. I have just physical life, but eternal death. What a glorious What a beautiful verse this is. The greatest love, the greatest sacrifice, the greatest offer. And many of us, I know, have received this gift. If you haven't, and you happen to be here today, someday when you stand before the creator of the universe, you surely won't be able to say, I didn't know, I didn't hear about Jesus. You won't be able to say, It was not explained to me. John 3.16 could not be more simple and more clear. If you haven't believed into Christ and his finished work on the cross, then there's no better time than right now to believe what John 3.16 outlines. You must believe in Jesus. Let him be your savior. He's the only one who can wash away our sins and present us acceptable to a holy God. So this week, let's live for him. Let's worship him every day. Let's give him our best in return. Let's think of these things as we get ready for our Lord's Supper. And as we stand and we sing verses 1 and 4 when we all get to heaven.